I've come to share a word with you today, and you've come to hear it. And it's my earnest prayer that we actually finish at the same time. Um, I knew some of you would get it. Um, I read some time ago about early attempts to ship freshwater cod from Boston to San Francisco in the early parts of the 19th century. Now, at that time, the only way to ship in a timely fashion was to literally take a ship around the southern tip of South America and up the west coast. And even that took several months to happen. So when they first did it, they thought what they'd do is they would take the cod, they would go ahead and fillet them, put them on ice, and ship them around the horn. The problem was that the journey took so long that their first attempt arrived at San Francisco with the ice melted and the cod rotten. And I love this quote that they gave then. The cod was generally unfit for consumption. That was their first attempt. Then they came up with this ingenious idea of actually making sealed water tanks that they would put the cod in live, ship them around the coast of South America and up to San Francisco, where they could be then taken out and filleted and sold on the market there. The problem was, by the time they got there, the fish had become soft and pasty and generally were no good again. And so they were trying to decide, how in the world can we get freshwater cod from Boston to San Francisco and be worth anything? And somebody came up with this ingenious idea. They said, what if in these same sealed tanks of water, we were to put a couple of catfish? Would that make any difference at all? And you might say, why? It's because catfish and cod are natural enemies. And so they decided to try it. They took these big tanks, they put all these cod in there, and then they put a couple, two to three catfish in each tank. And the cod were so afraid that they swam around constantly. And so by the time they got to San Francisco, they were still as fresh as the day they were packed. And I think that's a great story to start my message with today about why we worship and the power of worship. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about the power of being a worshiper. And, and it opens the door for us. That story opens the door for us for two things. One, to be reminded of a uh, real and an important reality, but also to be reminded to embrace a truth that I believe is even greater than that reality. What, what is the reality I want us to be reminded of? Number one, that every one of us have an enemy. And that enemy, by the way, is not your spouse. It's not your wayward, rebellious children. It's not the teachers at school that you don't like the grades they give you. It's not your boss. It's not the government. Your enemy has a name, and it's not Hillary or Donald. Your enemy's name is Satan. Your enemy's name is Lucifer. Your enemy's name is the devil. And do you know that he has never awakened on any morning and thought well of you? He hates your guts. He hates everything about you. He is set on destroying you. In fact, he has several tools at his behest. And one of them is stealing. The other one is 
killing. But his greatest tool that he uses probably above all other tools is that of lying. He can't change the truth. The truth is the truth no matter where it is. The truth is you are a child of God. The truth is you are loved by God Almighty. And he can't change that truth. But he can whisper lies in your ears to try to get you to believe a twisted truth. That maybe you're not quite spiritual enough for God. Maybe you're not holy enough. Maybe you've sinned too much or too big. Maybe God loves you, but He doesn't really like you. He, he twists things around. This morning, uh, I, I went to my office, and I don't normally do it, just because I know that if I do it once, you get sucked in. And I didn't want to get sucked in. But for whatever reason, I opened Facebook, and almost the very first posting was this little thing that's up there. Can you put it up there? It says this. I have to come over here to read it. It says, you have to keep unmasking the world about you for what it is. Manipulative, controlling, power-hungry, and in the long run, destructive. By the way, it's talking about the world system. But remember, Jesus Himself called Satan the ruler of this world. So we're talking about a world system that He has propagated. Then He goes on to say, the world tells you many lies about who you are, and you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity, and held safe in an everlasting embrace. That's from Henry Nouwen, The Life of the Beloved. And that catches well what the enemy or the enemy's world system tries to do to us. He tries to lie to us. So you have an enemy is the first reality. But the higher reality is that all of us as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, which we've been looking at last month, all of us are called by God with tools to battle this enemy. Every one of us, every one of us as believers are able to defeat the devices of the enemy. And we have several tools. What, what kind of tools do you think we have to battle the enemy? Give me a couple. Prayer. Prayer, absolutely. With prayer, you can cast down every thought that comes into your mind that is contrary to the truth. What else? The Word of God. What did Jesus use when the enemy came and tempted Him? He used the Word. He says, the Bible says, the Word of God says. So He uses the Bible. What else? Okay, what else? I'm sorry, what did you say? Friends, you have one another. You have the ability to draw strength from one another, to, to be able to encourage one another in the Lord when you're struggling. And then somebody originally said here, worship. You have worship. I believe worship is one of, if not the, greatest weapons that we have in battling the enemy. Um, a scripture I want you to turn to, if you would, is Luke chapter 10. Now, worship... Go ahead and turn there if you would. Worship is one of the core values of our church. So much so that um, it's almost possible to feel like, why should we talk about worship? Because that's what we're known for. Uh, we're that church on the north end of town that, you know, we tend to uh, be considered a little bit different, a little bit weird. Um, our people actually raise their hands so that while you're in worship, people are looking around like, what, what are you going on? You need to use the restroom or what's going on? 
uh, or, or you get really excited and you wave banners and you got all these kids up front waving banners. And if you get really excited, you dance some kind of two-step thing. We don't even know what it's called. You know, the Pentecostal hop or something like that. I don't know. Kind of like they used to have the bunny hop. Now we got the Pentecostal hop. But anyways, you get really excited and you get really weird. I have literally had, I have truly, I have had people, literally or actually, I've had people, that's an old joke, I've had people say to me, we were worried about coming to your church because of what we heard about your worship. We heard that you were weird. And my response is, they're right. We are. But we're going to go after it with all of our hearts. So why should I have to talk about worship? Because I believe there's some things in worship that we forget sometimes that we have to be reminded. And why it's a part of the uh, DNA, about part of the fiber of who we are as a church. And what a great time in March as we're coming up on Easter to actually talk about why worship is so important. So Luke chapter 10, I ask you to turn there. Luke 10, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So these 70 are sent out two by two. Jump forward to verse 17. Verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord... Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, this is a place where a little bit of Bible study might actually be of some value to us. Um, I was raised with this concept when I read this portion of Scripture that when the disciples came back, they were like giddy with excitement because they went out and did what Jesus said and it actually worked. I mean, isn't it kind of exciting when you do something, you pray for somebody who's got a headache and they actually get better? Isn't that kind of exciting? It's like, whoa, this thing actually works. And that's kind of what they were feeling. They were thrilled, they were excited, they were happy. And they come back and they say, even the demons are subject to us. And then Jesus' next words, I always kind of heard like this. Like, they, they come back, they're all excited, and he sighs heavily and closes his eyes and just shakes his head. All right, you saw that happen, great, good, big deal. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So get a little bit of perspective here, would you? Would you calm down? That's how I always read that, always. And then in doing a little bit of study, I discovered that Jesus used a specific word and a specific tense of that word when he used the word fall. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now, for those of you that don't know Greek, uh, and I don't, I don't know much Greek at all, I just know enough to get myself in trouble, but Greek has several tenses. It has a tense like present active indicative is one of the tenses, and it basically means what's happening is happening right now, and it's active, it's, it's going on. So we are now in the middle of a service in which I am preaching. So that would be in the present active indicative tense. Then they have another tense called arist. A-O-R-I-S-T. For those of you that like to know things. Arist tense means it happened once and for all and it's done. For example, I could say that I had a wedding on June 14, 1980 at which I was married to my wife. 
So I had a wedding. That's a once and for all event. That's the aorist tense. But then they have a tense that's an interesting tense. It's called the imperfect tense. And a way that you could explain that would be like if I were to say, I was married to Karen Lonneville on June 14, 1980. That's a once and for all event, but it has ongoing implications because I'm still married to her. That's the imperfect tense. It's happened, but it has ongoing fallout. The word and the tense that Jesus used for the word fall wasn't present active indicative and it wasn't aorist. It was the imperfect tense, which means he was saying to the disciples, every time you heal the sick, every time you raise the dead, every time you cast out a demon, I am seeing Satan again fall from heaven. Did it happen previously? Yes. When the Father cast him out of heaven. But there are ongoing implications to it. And what I believe God is saying to us is, every time you stand in worship, every time you lift your hands, every time you clap your hands, every time you dance, every time you wave a banner, something is happening in the heavenly realm. You are pushing back the darkness of the enemy in this world situation. You are causing Satan to literally fall from heaven afresh. Um, years ago, it, it was very popular. I haven't seen it lately. But it used to be that I would regularly see people wearing t-shirts that have uh, just two words written on it. And those two words were, stuff happens. Stuff happens. And I want to suggest to you that when you worship, stuff happens. Um, when you stand in a place of struggle, of challenge. Like, I, I woke up this morning. I, I have this weird thing. Every once in a while, it, just, it rarely happens, and I'm grateful for it. But, uh, I mean, I'm grateful that it rarely happens. I woke up this morning. Uh, I, I turned suddenly. I don't know what I did. It's just like, you didn't do anything. It just it happened. And all of a sudden, I felt that twinge in my back that I've had many times when I know it's about to pull a muscle in my back. I don't get it. I don't like it. It's there. And so the whole time during worship, I'm very aware. I'm trying to be very careful because I know I'm going to have to stand up here and speak to you. So I want to be very, very careful about how I move, how I turn, how I do my body because I recognize that. But when you choose with the challenges that you're facing on a day-by-day -day basis to still give honor and glory to God with your words, with your songs, with your life, you actually cause stuff to happen in the heavenly realm. In fact, I believe you are more powerful than you realize. I believe that when you choose worship, even in the midst of suffering and struggle, when you choose to give God glory that He is due, even when you don't feel like it, I believe the enemy dreads that with all of his heart. It's kind of like where it says uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, Moses chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to become the son of Pharaoh. And the enemy couldn't understand why somebody would choose to go with God. He said the same thing to Job. If I take away all these perks, He'll no longer worship you. And God says, I think love wins. I think if people have experienced my love, they will worship me anyways, even when things aren't going well. And that's what your worship does. And that's why Satan hates your worship. And he lies to you to try to warp and distort your worship to get you to stop what you're doing. It's more than just being overly emotional. It's more than just kind of moving with the rhythm of the music. 
I'm talking about where you actually enter into what's being said in song or said by your words or lived out by your life. Because worship obviously is more than just singing songs. It's your whole life given over to God. It's, it's a life of, uh, I, I liked what Dave Neeson said to me this week, it's a life of gratitude and contentment at how God has chosen to run your life. Gratitude and contentment. Being willing to say, it's not all I want yet, but I'm grateful for all that God has and is doing in my life. Now, the truth is, many of you will never be asked to stand up here and speak. You will never get the opportunity to preach a sermon in front of a church. Some of you will not be asked to give testimony. Some of you will never teach a class. But there's not one of you that can't worship if you choose. And I'm not even talking about worshiping out loud. I'm talking about a heart that is given over to God to give Him His due. Uh, it's not unusual for me at night um, when I lay down in bed. Uh, they say the average person takes 15 to 20 minutes to fall asleep. I think I am times four or five of that. I just you know, I lay in bed, I toss, I turn, my mind goes nuts, and sometimes it goes in not great ways. It's just like, God, control my mind. And one of the things that I have found that actually helps is that though I can't sing out loud because that would awaken my wife and that wouldn't be very courteous. And so I, I don't do that. I don't pray out loud because that too would be just somehow rude and keep her away. But in my mind, I do several things. I'm reciting scriptures. I am uh, reminding myself of the truth of God. I'm singing songs. There's been some songs that have been going over and over and over in my mind over these last several weeks. And I sing those songs over and over. I can't even remember all the words. I'm not good at it. I don't, I don't remember the words. I wait until I see them on the screen and I go, oh yeah, those are the words again. But I know the tune and I know the spirit and heart of the songs. And I let them play over and over in my heart. So there's never a point in time at which you can say, I can't worship. Maybe you can't preach. Maybe you can't teach in that moment. Maybe even at work you can't stand up and give witness because your boss is saying, I'm paying you to work, not to witness to people. And he's right. Give him his due. But there's never a point where he can take worship out of your heart. He can't. And that is a powerful tool before God. And here's the rub for many of us. We can accept that truth intellectually. You can sit here today listening to me and you can nod your head and say, yeah, that's true. But when the rub comes of things not going the way you thought they should, or even the way you prayed that they would, that's where the test comes. Are you going to be a God worshiper even when things don't look the way you think they should or go the way you want them to? Are you going to be a God worshiper? Look further down at Luke chapter 10. I'm still reading in the same chapter. Uh, Jesus says this in verse 19. Behold. And by the way, remember, this scripture was written at a time in which he was addressing his disciples, of which we've already gone last month through several times, the truth that you too are his disciples. So he's talking to his disciples. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, in that very moment, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All these things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the One to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. That's us. Then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. Again, He's now commending them for what they came back and reported. The things they saw of demons subject to the name of Christ. Of demons being cast out. Of the sick being healed. Of the kingdom of God coming in their midst. Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Uh, I was in an installation service a couple of weeks ago for the new pastor in Attica. Uh, He has been a friend for years and years and years. And so we had an installation service in which he is set in now officially as the pastor of Attica New Life Fellowship. And we went through the whole service. There was a charge to him, a charge to the congregation. There was laying on of hands. There was prayer. All the things you do in an installation service, which most of you guys haven't seen because I've been here too long. Um, But um, when it got all done, we gave an opportunity for the new pastor to make any comments he wanted. And he went up front and he stood for a minute and he thought for a minute and he said, I know this is probably going to look stupid. It's going to look silly to you. But I just feel like I need to do something before the Lord. And he stood to the side for a second and he danced in front of the congregation with no music. He just danced. The interesting thing is, one of the commentators I read about this passage in Luke 10 said that in that moment when it says Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, what it literally means in the Greek is that he danced a jig right there. He just up and danced in front of his disciples because he saw something that he wanted them to see. Um, It's this idea, and I put it up here as one of my points for you. If our eyes and minds are only transfixed with what's on earth, then we will miss what's taking place in the heavenlies. I think Jesus saw something they didn't see. They saw what was going on in the earth, but they didn't see what was going on in the heavenly realm, that Satan himself was falling and being cast out with every single thing that they did. Here's my point very simply. In Hebrews 9.23, you don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews 9.23, Jesus, through the Scripture, says that the heavens are sanctified or they're cleansed by a better sacrifice. So that's in chapter 9 of Hebrews. In chapter 10, he tells us what that better sacrifice is. And you can turn, or in chapter 13, rather. He, he tells us what that is. Chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 11. He says this, For the body of the animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. He's talking about how they would make sacrifice for sins. How the heavenlies were cleansed. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach or his shame. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. He was saying there were two things that were needed for the cleansing of the heaven. First was the blood of Christ, which was greater than the blood of bulls and goats that was an Old Testament type. But the second thing that was needed was the sacrifice of our lips, which is our praise and our worship. Those two things were what were used by God to actually sanctify or to cleanse the heavens where the enemy had had encroachment 
because of Adam in the garden giving over his authority and giving in to sin. All of this deals with the fact that there are things seen and things unseen. Things visible, things invisible. Things of the earth and things of the heaven. Uh, One final verse I want you to look at. Judges chapter 3. Judges 3 and verse 1. I can remember the first time I ever read these verses. They came as such a shock to me. At that time, I didn't do a lot of underlining in my Bible because I was taught that my Bible was holy and you shouldn't underline it. I don't believe that anymore. I think your Bible, the Word of God is holy, but I think your Bible is an instrument for you to mark on and to write on. But anyways, I can remember being so impacted by these verses that I underlined them so deeply that I couldn't then read the verses on the other side of the page anymore. Uh, Because it's like these were like a revelation to me. But listen to this verse. This is about the children of Israel going into Israel. And he says this. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them. That is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. So in other words, God was saying, when you go into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, I'm going to leave some enemies. And the reason I'm leaving some enemies is so that you will learn how to fight. You will know that you have a responsibility in taking this land. I'm not just going to hand it to you. I am giving it to you. But part of the way I'm giving it to you is that you will learn how to fight. And then you link that with Psalm 144 where God says, I have trained your hands for war and your fingers for battle. That's what God did. So he says in Psalm 144, every time you clap your hands, you're striking the enemy. You're striking the enemy. Every time you raise your hands, you're declaring God's victory over the enemy. If you catch this understanding of a higher and a lower, this has been like uh, something that's kind of gripped my mind in the last several weeks. This idea of higher and lower. It's kind of like we live on the lower plane on a day-by-day basis. Sometimes you feel so low that you feel lower than low. You feel so low that you could crawl under the belly of a caterpillar and never touch it. You feel that low in life. But when you're low, what are you to do? Our problem is too often when we're low, we moan and we groan and we look for other people who are low who will sing the song of the dirge. We want people to commiserate with us. We want people to pat us and say, oh, you poor baby, it's so hard. So when you're low, what do you do? I think when you're low, you reach into the higher. Uh, I was talking with Jean before the service and she was saying, you know, we reach into ourselves. I want to suggest it's even more than reaching into yourself. It's only reaching into yourself if you know you've got Christ in you, the hope of glory. What we do is we reach toward the heavens where God dwells in ineffable glory, the Scripture says. And we grab hold of Him and we say, though I feel low, which is what Henry Nouwen was saying, though I feel low, that's not the truth. The truth is I am a chosen son or daughter of the living God. That's who I am. And He loves me as I am. That doesn't mean He's not changing me. It doesn't mean I'm not going through hard things, but my grip is on the higher, not the lower. For too long, we have subscribed to a theology of powerlessness that leads to prayerlessness, that results in fruitlessness, that ultimately ends in hopelessness, where we just don't have any hope for anything in our lives changing and we give up. We quit. We, we, we divorce. Uh, we, we start thinking about ending our lives. We look for a way out. People quit the ministry because we have not laid hold of the higher truth of what God has said about us and to us. And I want to remind you, this is not a single event. 
This is an ongoing battle. I had somebody say to me recently, I can't go through two minutes without this. I said, join the rest of the human race. I don't mean that flippantly. I mean we all deal with this stuff constantly on an ongoing basis. Thoughts flash through our mind. And we say, I don't want those thoughts. You're dealing with an enemy who wants to bring not just temptation. He's an equal opportunity accuser. He brings a tempting thought, and then when you reject it, he then makes you feel guilty for even having the thought. It's a constant battle that we are dealing with. And we're actually going to look at that more in a not too long in the future where we're going to deal with the battleground of our mind. How we actually fight this in our minds. I am convinced that our heart response, our choice to worship and to praise God, no matter what the situation, is if not the greatest, it's one of the greatest weapons that God actually affords to us. The enemy cannot understand how we can choose to worship God when things aren't going well. He can't figure out when our life is not perfect, why do you give God glory? Because He's not pandering to your every need. If, if He's worthy of praise, He should give you everything you want. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. It's about Him, not about us. And one of the other things I want to suggest to you is don't spend a lot of your time arguing and fighting with the devil. It's one of the things that concerns me is when I hear people tell me that they're constantly having to have a conversation with the enemy and telling him what's not true. I don't talk to the enemy. I talk to God. I, I, I'm saying to God, God, I'm reminded even right now of what you have said. I know what my mind is saying. I know what my feelings feel. But I'm reminding myself of what you have said. And I talk to God. I don't want to give the enemy any notice at all. I want to give it to God. I know I'm fighting the enemy, but I'm fighting the enemy by putting my focus and my attention back on God. We are worshiping the captain or the commander of the Lord's host, it says in Joshua. And all, all that's within that situation has to bow to him, including our own heart. I believe the enemy is far more concerned with our worship than he is our sins. We think our sin is our problem. If we could only get our life right, if we could only stop being angry, if we could only stop yelling at our kids, if we could only, if only. But the truth is, I don't think that's our problem because Jesus has already paid the full price for our sins. Every sin you've ever committed or ever could commit, Jesus has paid the price for. It's already been paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ. Sin is not our problem, even though the enemy wants us to think it is. He knows that the real danger point is our worship. Because he knows if he can corrupt our worship in time, he will corrupt our morals. That's the danger point for all of us. How does he corrupt our worship? By getting us to stop worshiping at all. By getting us to get our attention on everything but God. Even think about, and I'm, I'm just, I want to challenge you honestly, think about your conversations. Think about coming into this place. What were your conversations like? I, I can tell you, honestly, there are folks I know, as much as I love them dearly, the second they walk in the door, I know the first words out of their mouth are going to be complaining about things in their life, things that they don't like, their health, the, their family, their children, their situation, their marriage, their husband, their wife. What is your language coming out of your mouth? What is it conveying? Is it conveying anything of worship of God that He is worthy regardless of what I'm facing? That doesn't mean we can't draw help from one another as we talked earlier, but it's done in a way that doesn't then diminish or take away our worship. Our privilege and responsibility 
is as we worship God, to see Satan falling. And that's the power of a worshiper. To know that every time I lift my voice in giving praise to God, every time my heart swells in worship, Satan is losing ground. He doesn't have ground in my life. And things have changed. And if you're honest in your own life, although you've gone through a lot of stuff, the truth is you're not where you used to be. God has done all things well in your life. And it's in that light to kind of help us along a little bit. As leadership, we made the decision that next Sunday, our entire service is going to be given over just to worship. So it's going to be an entire service just of worship. So you can kind of come prepared for that. Come with more comfortable clothes. Come with clothes that you can actually lay on your face before the Lord and still be appropriate and modest. Come with clothes that you can dance in if you want to. It's interesting to me that people can go overseas and get wild with God overseas, but they come home and it's like they just stand there like a dud. So next Sunday service is given over to just us giving to God is due worship. All out. And all of the kids are going to be in here from the beginning, but at about 11 o'clock there will be a release of children four and under who are going to go down to nursery and child care there. And the five-year-olds and up are going to stay up here. And they can either stay with mom and dad who can help them to learn how to worship. Or there will actually be some children ministry workers in the back of the sanctuary who will actually help them to practice what they have been learning in children's worship. Karen and I had the opportunity um, last week to go down on... Uh, during the uh, beginning part of the service here, while you were worshiping, to go down to children's worship. And i got to tell you, it was great to see the kids going after it together. They were jumping, they were raising their hands, they were worshiping God, they were going after it. And that's the kind of thing we want to raise our children to say, this is the normal environment for you to grow up in. So next week is going to be a whole service given over to worship. Okay? All right, would you stand with me? Um, <clears throat> I want to give you an opportunity to just take a moment. In fact, why, why don't you close your eyes for just a moment, if you would. Just close your eyes between you and the Lord. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that anybody has to see other than just you and your heart. And you know whether or not you have found of recent that your focus has been diverted. The enemy has almost tricked you into putting all the focus on other things other than Him. In fact, sometimes you don't even bother thinking about coming to church anymore because you're so busy just living your life. And then you wonder why things don't always go as well as you want. Because the only way we're going to know true joy, true happiness, is when our focus is, first of all, God, and obedience and service to Him. And sometimes, it's not that we don't come to church, we come to church, but things have just grabbed our hearts Maybe it is that doctor's diagnosis that just grips us and we become discouraged and upset. Or maybe our job situation isn't all we ever thought it would be. And we become discouraged and depressed. And I want to give you an opportunity, just, just as you're standing right now, just say, Father, and again, use your own words. Just say, Father, I, I choose to make you preeminent in my life. You are God most high. You're worthy of of my worship. You're worthy of my praise. Nothing is going to steal that from me. And I choose to recognize that when I worship, when I run after you, whether it be in 
actual singing of worship or reading the word or prayer or connecting in fellowship. When I run after you, I believe the enemy loses ground and he falls afresh from heaven. I choose to make you my focus, God. So just take a moment and do that in your own words. Give him his due. Is there anything in your life that it's like if you look at your schedule, what is your schedule built around? What's the most important thing to you? If we were to look at your finances, what's the thing that you give yourself to? Is God and worship of God the preeminent thing? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. Father, we give ourselves to you afresh, recognizing that you alone are the one who is truly worthy. We recognize we are all worshiping someone or something. The only question is who or what. And we choose. We choose, Father, because of how you have so lived your life in us and through us, we choose to worship you above all. It's the only appropriate response of a grateful heart for your salvation, for the redemption you've worked in us, for the healing, for all of the good things. Even as was said during worship, although there might be something that is bugging us, there are literally hundreds and thousands of things where your goodness has been manifest to us. We choose to worship you, Father. We want your glory to be seen in all the earth, and we want the enemy to know that everything that he has planned is going to backfire. Because as bad as it might get, we're going to still turn and run back to God. We're going to give him glory. Give him honor. So Lord, to your name we give all glory. Let this be a house, a place of worship all of the days that it exists until your coming. Lord, let this be a place that is known for worship of Almighty God. All out, abandoned worship. We commit to that, Father. In the name of Christ, amen and amen. Uh, one last thing, if you guys are willing. Uh, we have an Easter egg hunt 